Whoops, messed that up. Um, a few episodes ago, my friend Robert Wiesner joined me as a guest, uh, and we looked at Romans chapter 9, um, and we asked the question, does it support a Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election? Well, how, um, how would a non-Calvinist, specifically an Arminian, read Romans 9, and how might the two views hold up against each other uh, in dialogue? That's the question that we answer in today, today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Sorry about the hiccups there, uh, introducing the show. Um, my name is Chris Date, and thank you for joining me for an another episode of The Apologetics. As I said, we'll be following up uh, to an interview that I did a few episodes ago with my friend Robert Wiesner. In that interview, he and I presented what we think is the most faithful reading of Romans chapter 9, um, which is a reading that supports the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election. Um, but there are obviously other readings that are not Calvinist readings that, that uh, would maintain that Paul in Romans chapter 9 is not saying anything that would lend support to the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election. And today I'm going to play for you an interview, well, not an interview, but more of a dialogue uh, between Robert Wiesner, who was on a few episodes ago, um, and uh, an Arminian non-Calvinist uh, guest. And we will together, all three of us, be going through Romans chapter 9 and comparing and contrasting the two views, the two readings of Romans 9. Um, before I dive into that conversation, um, a couple of things that I just want to say. First of all, um, if you notice that I'm not wearing my glasses, it's because last week I lost them, and uh, I have an eye exam tomorrow. At uh, and and as part of that, I'll be prescribed new glasses, and um, you know, hopefully, I'll have them in time for the next episode of The Apologetics. But for now, uh, at least outside of the interview that was pre-recorded, you'll have to deal with my old glassesless appearance. Hopefully, that doesn't bother you too much. Um, the second thing before we dive into the discussion, and this is really important. Um, the seventh annual Rethinking Hell conference is coming up in just a few days. Uh, as if you're watching this live, it's Monday, November 2nd right now. And on this coming Friday, November 6th, is the first of our two-day uh, conference in the Seattle area, um, which is my neck of the woods up here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we will be doing social distancing. We'll have a cap on the number of attendees that can, that can attend. We'll be requiring masks. There will be hand sanitizer. It'll be an extremely safe event. And on top of that, we've got really great speakers. Even putting me aside, you've got Paul Copan, Clay Jones, Braxton Hunter, and Tim Barnett, all four of them fantastic and well-known apologists um, who are going to have some really helpful things to say on the topic of our conference this year, which is apologetics and the problem of hell. Meaning, how as Christians can we do, can we do a better job um, engaging in the um, objections from unbelievers when we're doing apologetics when those objections have to do with the Christian doctrine of hell. Um, our speakers, all of them except for me, are believers in eternal torment, and so this isn't a conference where the solution that's going to be offered to the problem of hell in apologetics is conditional immortality. That is an element of the presentation I will be giving in my plenary presentation 
but that obviously won't be uh, a plank in the uh, presentation of my co-speakers. So this is going to be a really fantastic conference. It's going to be safe, and there's still lots and lots of seats available. Um, if you can be in the Seattle area this coming weekend, Friday and Saturday, November 6th and 7th, um, then go to RethinkingHellConference.com right now and uh, and, and register for your um for your ticket. If you, uh, we're way past early bird and super early bird um, opportunities, so the standard price of a registration is $50, but if that's something that will be prohibitive, will make it so that you can't come and attend in person, then just shoot me a Facebook message, uh, facebook.com slash chrisdate, or send me an email live at rethinkinghell.com, um, and, and we have some options that we may be able to help you with. We'd really love to have as many people come in person as possible, uh, and so that's my appeal to you. Um, now. If you can't be in the Seattle area, regardless of the price of registration, then you might want to watch the uh, the presentations live or even on demand within the you know few days uh, after the conference. You see, we don't usually publish the recordings of our uh, presentations until several months or longer after an actual conference, which means that if you can have access to the um, to the plenary presentations and breakout presentations. Um, the days of the event and, and, and even for days and days afterwards, you will get early access to those things uh, well before uh, other people um, th that are not signing up for registrations uh, will get access to those same presentations, which again will be months and months down the road. So if you can't be in the Seattle area, why don't you consider going to RethinkingHellConference.com and signing up for a virtual online streaming um, ticket. You will be able to watch live as they are streamed, but you'll also be able to use the links that are emailed to you to uh, rewind and watch the presentations on demand. Um, so this is a great way. It's only $5 for a virtual ticket, and that $5 will get you that, that early access before anybody else does. Access to the presentations by, again, um, uh, Tim Barnett of Stand to Reason, Braxton Hunter of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and also Trinity Radio, Clay Jones of Talbot Seminary um, and, and Biola University, and then Paul Copan, all fantastic speakers, uh, as well as myself and two breakout speakers. You'll have access um, to all of those things. So um, I think it's going to be really well worth your time and your investment, whether you can in attend in person or whether you can only attend uh, remotely via online streaming. So again, please go to RethinkingHellConference.com and sign up today. Um, if you are able to make it in person, one uh, benefit of being able to come and att uh, attend in person is that we will be handing out bumper stickers, Rethinking Hell bumper stickers. Uh, and you, uh, we've never had bumper stickers before. Um, don't know if we'll continue to print them in the future. Um, so this may be your only opportunity to get your hands on a Rethinking Hell bumper sticker. Uh, so attend in person if you can. Again, that's RethinkingHellConference.com. And again, email me or send me a Facebook message if you can't afford the $50 registration fee and you want to attend in person. We can talk about that. All right, so with all of that out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and transition into the conversation that I am uh, that I had a few days ago, recorded it, um, and then I'll come in after the uh, recording and close things up. I'll be periodically checking the chat to see if you have any questions, and maybe I'll be able to interact a little bit here and there. Um, but otherwise, I introduce both Robert and his co-guest uh, in the recording, so I won't say any more. We'll just go ahead and dive right in. So here we go. I hope you enjoy. 
thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Apologetics. I'm, of course, Chris Date, and today, as you can see, uh, to your right and to my left, uh, I've got a couple of guests today, and I'll be introducing them in a moment, but let me tell you uh, the what's going to be happening today. A couple of episodes ago, I interviewed my friend, uh, whom you see, to your right, uh, Robert Wiesner. Um, I interviewed him and, and we, we walked through uh, Romans chapter 9 and talked about how we think um, what Paul says in Romans 9 supports the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. Um, uh, somebody reached out to us named Dan Chapa, and I'll be introducing him in a moment. He's also on the screen to to the right, to your right of Robert, um, and he thought that it would be a, a great idea, and, and Robert and I agreed, to have just a friendly, open, uh, brotherly conversation on whether or not Romans 9 does indeed support Calvinist, uh, Calvinism's unconditional election. Dan does not think it does, Robert and I think it does, um, and so we are, we've arranged 10-minute opening presentations on each of their parts, um, and they've prepared some slides that are going to help us really understand both perspectives, and then we'll just have about an hour or so of open conversation, and I think that it's going to be um, an, an enjoyable, friendly discussion, and one that hopefully will be edifying as well, and I'm confident it will be. Um, so with that out of the way, let me go ahead and let my guests introduce themselves, and I'll begin with Robert, since you were already on the show once before, um, you will be somewhat familiar to viewers, so you don't necessarily need to repeat everything that you would have, um, but for viewers that may not have watched your interview a couple of episodes ago, um, why don't you start by just um, telling us a little bit about yourself and your um, interest in this topic specifically, whatever you think is relevant. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm a pastor. I, I pastor Kimmore Baptist Church in Kimmore, New York. It's a suburb of Buffalo. I'm married to Jackie. Uh, we have three kids, Uriah, Hope, and a newborn uh, Cohen. And um, my interest in this subject uh, really, you know, just uh, go back to my uh, early 20s, really, when I started to, to dig into the Bible in church and I got introduced to this subject, uh, which I hadn't been exposed to before. And uh, particularly Romans 9, it's the one that uh, when you're, you know, just you, you know nothing but... Uh, you know, a certain brand of Arminianism, it kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up the first time you read it. And so uh, since then, you know, really now for about 15 years, I've, I've been reading everything I can get my hands on uh, about this text. Uh, it was a big part of my uh, master's thesis at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, part of which got uh, published in the Westminster Theological Journal, specifically focused on the, the Jewish background of it. And uh, I remain convinced uh, the, the, the longer I look at it and the deeper I, I dive into the Greek text, I remain convinced that it, it does teach something uh, that, that supports unconditional election uh, as it's understood in Calvinism, uh, even though I, I do want to distance myself from certain unnuanced uh, expressions of that, that that you can way too easily find on the internet. So Great. Yeah. And um, as I said, viewers, if you have not already watched my interview with Robert, I'd encourage you to go do so after this um, if you want to get Dan full or sorry Robert's fuller thoughts on Romans 9 since we will probably not cover all the ground that we did in that interview we'll be covering some different ground so these will be nice supplementary um, episodes uh, let me turn now to my new guest a guest that is has not been on my show before um, his name is Dan Chapa as I said and Dan since you are new to the show new to guests uh, my, or my viewers and even new to me really uh, I honestly don't know anything about you um, why don't you go ahead and spend a few minutes uh, telling me and and Robert and our v 
viewers about yourself and and where your uh, where your interest lies in this topic. Sure, happy to. So I'm uh, a Christian, and I was saved when I was very very young. Um, you know, I went forward and. Um, when I was six years old and got baptized and the pastor asked me a bunch of questions just to making sure I was ready but uh, he was satisfied and um, I've been following Christ pretty much my whole life um, without stop and I started out in Awanas and things like that and um, I guess I'm just one of those cases where I just never stopped I, I fell in love with the, with the scriptures and with with my Lord and um, never stopped reading the Bible and I had read the Bible through maybe at least the New Testament I'd read through maybe six or seven times by the time I was in high school. And a friend of mine brought up Romans 9. And I had read Romans 9 before, but to be honest, it was one of those passages I just probably didn't understand. And so when he started advancing a certain form of Calvinism through the text, I was, I just was kind of frozen like a deer in headlights, and I just didn't know what to do. And um, it in, in essence, I became a Calvinist for a while until I could find a non-Calvinist explanation of the text. And once I found a non-Calvinist explanation of the text, and then I kind of got back to where I started from, which is m more of a, a, a free will perspective. I discovered that I, I am an, uh, an Arminian. I am uh, different than like Leighton Flowers. I know, uh, Robert, you had a discussion with him in, in terms of... Um, I do hold to total depravity and God's prevenient grace and um, salvation is of the Lord and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm more of a classical Arminian um, in nature. I am a part of the Society of Evangelical Arminians. Um, I run a blog. It's just called danchapaplogs.com. It used to be called Arminian Chronicles, and I blogged there many, many years. And um, and then I also blog sometimes on the SCA blog. I have a bunch of stuff there. But uh, I'm, And church-wise, I'm a Southern Baptist. I teach Sunday school. After going to church for all my life, I feel like it's time for me to, to give give back. You know, I've just been fe feeding and feeding and feeding, so now it's time for me to help others. So um, that's what I do. But uh, that my, my interest in Romans 9 is because it impacted me so much, especially as a, um, as a youngster. And at the time, I didn't. We, I didn't have the resources that exist now. It's not like I could go on and find the SEA website and um, get all these resources. Um, it was just kind of um, me and a Bible and maybe a, a few commentaries, but not yeah. much. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us and, and, and for participating. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, I'm just curious. Um, how do you, like I said, I don't know anything about you. I hadn't heard, I didn't recognize your name when you reached out to me and Robert about this. Um, how how do you know about me and about the apologetics? How, what what um, what 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 is the, what is our connection to each other? I guess is what I'm asking. Oh well, you're pretty famous for a different That's topic. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yes, I I heard about you actually. Um, I have a uh, someone that I debated um, multiple times, Turton fan, and I believe he may have interacted with some of your he work. Has. And Turton fan used to blog on AO Men, um, but so we had a series of debates on Romans nine, and uh, so actually, so we started with Romans eight, the golden chain. So we had a two-hour debate on that, and then we had a two debates on Romans 9, one on 1 through 13, and then one on the rest of the chapter. And then I heard Robert's presentation, and the overlap was uncanny. It was so similar, so I was just like, um, I might as well take some of the, the things that uh, I just debated with Turton Fan and just apply it over into this context here, um, and I thought it might be useful. Now, 
Robert, you and Turton Fan are Calvinists, which you probably couldn't be more different in approach, uh, which is which is which is fascinating to me. Um, but still, you know, we're dealing with the same text, so there was a lot of overlap, and I, that's why I thought it might be uh, might be useful. Well, again, thanks for uh, not just for being here, but also thanks for um, whatever interest you've had in my work on this show or on the other show that you're that you're referring to there. Um, and I'll just leave that there for viewers that don't know. I do have a another ministry that I'm a part of that I'm much more known for, but that's neither here nor there. Um, all right. Well, with those intros out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into opening statements. Um, each of my guests are going to have 10 minutes and they prepared some slides to present um, their positive, um, positive isn't even the right word, We're, this isn't a debate, they're not making a case, but they are going to spend 10 minutes laying out how they understand Romans 9 and its, and its relationship, if any, to the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. Um, so Robert, you're going to go first, why don't you go ahead and share your screen and I'll let you know when I've started your 10 minute timer. I've shared it now with our audience so whenever you're ready to go go ahead all right and uh, I do uh, thank Dan uh, his interaction with the discussion we had was uh, the right kind and so I think this is going to be a good conversation that'll be helpful for people uh, thinking through these issues and uh, I, I hope that everyone regardless of what side you're on even if you're on my side that you're thinking uh, very critically uh, critiquing your own views and seeing where the holes are in your arguments and always seeking to learn uh, I don't want you to agree with me because it's agreeing with me I want you to uh, tether your views very very tightly to the text and uh, uh, figure out what implications that has for your theology so uh, to that end, uh, let's see here, sorry, here we go. Um, uh, I want to first uh, mention how Romans uh, 1 to 8 relate to 9 to 11, because I think uh, when we move into our discussion, we're going to see how that's important. In Romans 1 to 8, uh, justification for Paul famously is conditioned, that's uh, marked by the preposition ek, uh, on faith in Christ as opposed to works of the law. And not only does this tell us about the condition of justification, but also it tells us what marks out the people of God. I think this is an important uh, insight that uh, N.T. Wright and some other scholars have made that what marks out God's people is not Torah obedience or circumcision, uh, but faithful allegiance uh, to Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8.28 uh, ends up working kind of like a hinge because it invites us to begin to peer back uh, behind justification to look at election and calling. And it, and it really um, introduces the topic that is going to be the focus for Paul uh, when he moves into chapters 9 to 11, where we get this concentration of calling language, election language, and mercy language. And so Paul is addressing in Romans 9 to 11, uh, the nature and purpose of divine election, specifically with reference to Israel's unbelief. That's the problem that is inviting uh, this discussion and why Romans 9 to 11 is so integral uh, to his argument. And he's dealing with uh, individual Israelites as elect members of this uh, faithful remnant whom God has had mercy on and as non-elect. So it's it's dualistic in that way. And again, we see the preposition ek pop up, which marks conditions. And all the conditions throughout uh, Romans 9 especially uh, have to do with uh, conditions that God himself meets. His unconditioned mercy and his creative call are the conditions for election as opposed to uh, human faith as a condition for justification. And human standards of 
of worth, works, and even will, which I think would have to be taken to include faith, are rejected as conditions for divine mercy, calling, election, etc. Uh, so here's uh, basically the structure of my argument. We're going to talk about theological inferences, which uh, we made much of in the in the video on the Greek text before. Uh, the nature of divine mercy and calling, the meaning of the potter clay analogy, and that Romans 9 to 11 deals with election to salvation. Then I'll, I'll summarize. So theological inferences. Uh, so there are a number of markers uh, that, that uh, lay Paul's cards out on the table uh, that tell us what he's doing. There's there's a high concentration of allusions to the Old Testament that, that Paul makes, uh, not even allusions only, but also uh, direct quotes. And throughout, he, he offers us a number of inferences that tell us how he's reading them, what theological uh, message he is ringing from these texts. And so you see it in verse 8 with uh, Tut Estin. Uh, you see it in verse 11 uh, with uh, Gar 4. And then uh, uh, the really important ones and emphatic ones, I think, are in verses 16 and 18 introduced by Ara Un. And they really draw the eyes in if you're if you're reading the text, rendered usually something like so then, etc. And they all focus, this is what's important, they all focus exclusively on divine choice or calling, and they reject explicitly human conditions for election. And so here, here's uh, some of here, um, although they were not born, referring to uh, Jacob and Esau, and had not done anything good or evil, not from works, but from the one who calls, right? Introducing a, an antithesis, not just uh, not works versus uh, faith, but here we have not works versus the one who calls, right? Um, and then um, uh, he says in verse 16, is neither the person who wills nor the person who strives, but God who mercies. The conditions are explicitly uh, presented as God's mercy. And then in verse 18, God uh, mercies whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So uh, there's the this strong emphasis on divine agency and the rejection of human conditions as the basis for calling and mercy. And uh, this is the conclusion that, that Piper draws out that I think is really relevant. I'm just going to read the underlined portion here. This is in his important monograph on Romans 9, The Justification of God. Um, he says that um, uh, uh, the 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 phrase uh, not by works or not from works but from faith describes justification and, and here's the underlined portion uh, never the event of election or predestination Paul never grounds the electing purpose of God in man's faith the counterpart to works in conjunction with election as opposed to justification is always God's own call or His own grace the predestination and call of God precede justification and have no ground in any human act, not even faith. And that's the, the point that I think is really uh, emphatic in Romans 9, and, and that we, we end up doing damage to Paul's argument and rhetoric if we don't uh, appreciate that. Uh, so uh, related to those inferences are the uh, purpose statements that we have. This is an order that God's purpose with regard to election might remain, verse 11. And uh, Paul gives us two infinitives and a hint clause in verses uh, 22 to 23 to, to tell us 
God's ultimate aims and what he's doing with Israel. And he wants to show his wrath and make known his power. And I think most ultimately in order to make known the riches of his mercy. But it's all about the, the divine revelation. And this is the, the summary and climax of the message that Paul is drawing out from the Old Testament. And, and that leads us into the uh, mercy and calling language, which um, I can only touch on briefly. I think we'll, we'll get into this a good bit uh, in our discussion, I hope. Um, uh, what's important is to recognize that this is grounded in the Old Testament and uh, uh, really in Jewish dialogue and discourse uh, in the Second Temple period. And there are varieties of different perspectives, but Exodus 32 to 34 is uh, paradigmatic here. Um, what happened in that in that account was uh, you, you all know the famous story of Israel's idolatry and the golden calf incident. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, God wants God tells him, "Hey, I, I'm going to wipe out Israel and start over with you." And and Moses intercedes for Israel, and ultimately the covenant is restored. Um, but it's it's restored in, in such a way that that God's uh, sovereign choice is preserved. It's not restored with the nation as a whole. Uh, a, a great number are wiped out. Out and God has mercy on a remnant. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And, and uh, Moses is, is pleading throughout here that God would be a, a presence with the people to take them into the land and, and be a merciful presence because they are a stiff-necked and idolatrous people. And this led uh, other Second Temple Jews to uh, uh, debate and, and dialogue about the nature of God's mercy, especially with regard to the conditions for it. They, they vary from author to author. So if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you read the Wisdom of Solomon, you read the Book of Jubilees, you're going to get different takes on it. And Paul is stepping into that discussion about the nature of of, of the conditions for divine mercy. And so we have to compare and contrast his perspective with uh, other Jewish authors. And, and he really highlights the freedom uh, much closer to what you get in the Dead Sea Scrolls than what you get in texts like uh, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, for instance. And I hope to, to bring some of that up uh, in, in the dialogue uh, as, as we move forward. Um, there's also Paul's theology of the call. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Paul says that, that God has mercy on whom he will. He's the sole arbiter of his mercy. And and in Romans 9, uh, building on Romans 8, uh, and really Romans 4.17 as well, uh, Paul sees the divine call as a creative call. It's not just the, the call of the gospel or uh, uh, something like that. And it's certainly not a response to human activity. It actually creates the people of God because it is a naming call. God marks out his people by his choice. In the case of Jacob over Esau, before they were born and had done nothing good or evil. In the case of Isaac, his call, according to Romans 4.17, actually uh, creates the, the covenant heir where there was no life before. So uh, this is much more than a um, uh, the, the gospel call or, or some kind of response to human faith. And, and we'll, we'll need to get into that more. We could, we could talk about all the Pauline evidence on that. Uh, ever so briefly, the potter clay analogy. I, I don't know how much time I've spent, but I'm going to go really fast now because I don't want to uh, be impolite here. Um, uh, this is a diverse image in Judaism, even in the Old Testament. Uh, I think the closest analogy to what Paul does in Romans 9 is in Sirach 33 and in uh, the Qumran 
uh, Dead Sea Scrolls 1QH, which refers to the Thanksgiving hymns, uh, where forming language is deterministic and it's it's uh, individual predestinarian. And uh, I'd be happy to look into some of those texts I've published on this. Uh, viewers can check out my article in the Westminster Theological Journal. Uh, but forming results in certain eschatological destinies. And that brings me to my next point here, where salvation is a, is an important theme in Romans 9 to 11. This isn't just uh, imperial or empirical um, election. This is about, it, it, it at least has huge implications for uh, eschatological destinies. And that's why Paul is lamenting. Israel is currently severed from Christ because of unbelief. His desire, he says in 10.1, is for their salvation. Uh, and he recognizes that some are fashioned for destruction and others for glory. These refer to eschatological destinies. And also the, the genitives of mercy and of wrath are probably genitives of uh, destination, meaning that, that that is the place that they are headed. So Paul believes that uh, salvation is very much at stake, but he holds out hope for the future salvation of, of a presently unbelieving remnant. He says this in 927 and 1126. Uh, God is going to do this by mercifully reversing their hardening. He has consigned them over to disobedience, but he's going to have mercy on them all. I don't take the all as universal. I think it's a reference to a future remnant of now unbelieving Israelites. Uh, but but whatever else we can agree on about the revelatory purposes of Israel's hardening and the nature of election, which I think Arminians tend to highlight something there that Calvinists uh, don't pay enough attention to. Um, still, we can't reduce it to a discussion of empirical election. Uh, salvation and nothing less is at stake there. So uh, just real quickly summarizing, uh, Paul's uh, theological inferences place iterative and unmistakable emphasis on the divine will and explicitly reject acts of the human will as conditions for mercy, calling, and election. Uh, mercy and calling are specific to individual Israelites here, and I think we can, we can make inferences from that to talk about Gentiles as well, but Paul is focused on the Israel problem. And he tells us that the covenant is preserved by unconditioned mercy and a creative call that, that names uh, the beneficiaries of, of God's election. And uh, God, God forms different kinds of vessels, individuals from the same lump, Israel, for different purposes and different ends. And these are eschatological ends. So that uh, divine mercy, calling, election, they have soteriological consequences. And yet Paul holds out the hope for a remnant of now unbelieving Israelites to be saved when God extends this mercy. So this mercy will be effective uh, certainly in the future as well. And I think that's it. Uh, why don't you go ahead now and share your screen and uh, I'll let you know when you can begin. The viewers can now see it. So whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and begin. Okay, so I'll start off. Um, so this is an election debate. It's October 27th, you know, four years. So it's, a, it's surprising that we're not talking about Trump versus Biden. But, you know, this is a different election debate. <laughs> um, so I'll start. Out. So um, N.T. Wright describes the section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, which is a section, in terms of a chiastic structure. It's a system of parallels that basically um, builds to a point and makes and emphasizes certain things. And he sees the central aspect of the chiastic structure and the central point in Paul as Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And he sums it up as, it's all about God's righteousness revealed in the good news 
of the Messiah for the benefit of all who believe. And God fulfills his promises to Abraham through the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, and believers are Abraham's children. So we're going to be focused on Romans 9 to, today in this discussion, and I'll have two contentions, that my view shows the connection between Romans 9 and this central theme, and that the Calvinist view is inconsistent with this uh, central theme and this free offer of the gospel. Okay, so sola fide uh, connects God's promises to Israel and salvation. So I'm using sola fide as, a, as an abbreviation. There's the, there's the aspect of uh, the promises of God and then believing those promises and then being justified by faith. And I'm wrapping that all, all up, and it can be seen at different angles. So, But I'm just going to use sola fide for, for brief. Okay, so Genesis 18 is a very important text for Paul, and he cites it three times in the New Testament. Actually, a fourth if Hebrews is, is his, but probably not. But... Um, in Genesis 18, it says, At this point, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, in Galatians 4, Paul uses this text allegorically, teaching that Hagar and Ishmael represent the law and slavery to sin, while Sarah and Isaac resent, represent the gospel and believers. Now, in Romans 4, Paul goes on, and he uh, Based on that text again, he says, believers are Abraham's children. They receive the promise of inheritance by faith, not by works. So the inheritance will be based on God's grace. Abraham believes God's promise despite Sarah's old age. She was too old to have children, but Abraham still believed God, and he was justified by his faith in this promise. Now, in Romans, he and this is one of Paul's techniques, but he sums all that up in a very brief uh, uh, citation in Romans 9, where he says, for this is what the promise said, and then he quotes Genesis 18 again. But he expects us to remember what he taught in Romans 4, and he just kind of invokes it. Um, and Paul does this, uh, this sort of thing of summing things up and then just reciting them. That, that's pretty um, that's a pretty common technique for Paul. Another example is um, Romans 7, uh, 7 through 8, 11, where he talks about this dichotomy between the law and the spirit, between the flesh and being in uh, the realm, being in Jesus Christ and that sort of thing. And he lays that out step by step in detail in 7 through 8, and then he invokes it again in chapter 10, uh, 10, 5 through 8. So this is a pretty common technique to just um, expect his uh, readers to just remember, you know, the doctrine that he's laid out and then just um, bring it back to mind with a quick citation. And all of this is within the framework of that believers are Abraham's children. And that's one of Paul's central points that he makes, in, especially in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. And it's one of his overall uh, core teachings, and all of this fits within that framework. Now, Calvinist commentaries see that sola fide is in Romans 9, 8 and 9. Right. Uh, this is John Murray. The pr uh, promise in this instance is the promise given to Abraham, quoted in 9 and drawn from Genesis 8. Isaac was born in pursuance of that promise. To that promise, the faith of Abraham attached itself. Cross-reference Romans 4.19. Um, Schreiner says something similar. As in Galatians 4.21, so here too, Ishmael stands as a type for unbelievers and Isaac as a type for believers. Moose says something similar for time. I'll just, uh, just uh, pass on that. But basically, uh, these Calvinist commentaries tell us that sola fide is in Romans 9, but they don't tell us why it's in Romans chapter 9. 
Now, what is the role of sola fide in Romans chapter 9? So there are two Israels based on one promise. God promise was said about Isaac, and it was said to Abraham, and to Sarah also, but it was said about Isaac, and it was said to Abraham. God promised Isaac would become a patriarch of Israel, which is the Messiah's earthly family. God then justifies Abraham and Sarah by faith in that promise. He counted their faith as righteousness. Now, if we, when we read Romans 9, and we, uh, as talking about either the promise to Israel or the promise of salvation, that's the wrong perspective. We shouldn't think of this as an either or. It shouldn't either be national election or about salvation. That's the wrong perspective. It's both and. And to give an example of this, Douglas Moo cites 12 examples within Paul where the phrase, the word of God, means the gospel. That's a common way that Paul uses to refer to the gospel, the word of God. And so he concludes that in Romans 9, 6, um, that, well, in Romans 9, 6, the word of God means the promises to Israel. Therefore, it can't mean the gospel because it's either or. But Paul connects these things rather than uh, opposes them. For Paul, it's both and. For Mu, it's either or. And this both-and perspective reconciles some of the best commentaries and arguments on both sides of the debate. So you have commentaries like Dunn and Cranfield who focus on the national election aspect. And they're absolutely right. When you look at the Old Testament texts themselves, they're about the national election and the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. That's what's going on in Genesis. However, Moo and Schreiner are equally right when they say, well, Romans 9 is about salvation. But if you have this both and perspective, you can reconcile them and take the best aspects of both these commentaries together. In Romans 9, God keeps his promise, which contributes towards that central theme that we talked about in Romans 9:11. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, Paul sums up his argument by saying that righteousness is obtained through faith, not works. And this follows since the promise is the promise of the gospel, right? So the, the chapter conclusion, I know Paul didn't have chapters, but the chapter conclusion uh, starts in verse 30, and it sums up the argument and basically teaches sola fide. Well, how does that follow from unconditional individual election to salvation? It really doesn't. Um, in, uh, in Robert and Chris's discussion, Chris Date called, what shall we say then? That's the starting point of uh, the chapter conclusion as a transition marker, but I have to disagree here. That's not the way Paul uses that. Um, he uses it three times to either introduce a summary from his preceding arguments, or he uses it uh, six more times to have a, a question arising from the preceding argument. But either way, the what shall we say then has to flow out of the uh, previous argument. It has to be connected to that, uh, that, that previous argument. Now, uh, Romans 9, in Romans 9, so if you take sola fide as the formula, by grace through faith, Paul is focused here in Romans 9 on one aspect. That's the by grace aspect of by grace through faith. And um, Now, so let's go further into the role of sola fide in Romans 9, uh, 1 through 13. So Paul has a desire for the salvation of the Jews, and that fits within his theology if there's this free offer of the gospel to everyone that's available to all, and everyone can uh, accept it because of God's grace. 
And then uh, Israel's blessings. Okay, so in Romans 9, 4 through 5, there's a list of these spiritual blessings that are given to Israel. And Israel's blessings have both a national and a spiritual aspect. And you see people struggling with that in the commentaries. Well, is adoption really adoption about eternal life, or is it a, the adoption of the nation of the Jews? Well, it, it just has both aspects. And God chose Israel to bring salvation through the Jewish Messiah. This is probably the most important point in Romans 9, 5, um, that the Jesus is the Messiah according to the, the Israel is are his kinsmen, his brothers according to the flesh. What was the point in in that God chose Israel to bring salvation through the Jewish Messiah? In 9, 6, the word of God is both the promises to Israel and the gospel. And Romans 9, 6, again, the two Israels are both the nation of Israel and believers, or if Chris prefers, uh, based on his last debate, uh, believing Israelites. Romans 9, 8, the children of the promise are believers. Romans 9, 9, the promise is the promise of the gospel. And Romans 9, 11, this is, this is important, the purpose of God in, is the purpose of God in election. The purpose of God in electing the nation of Israel is to bless all the nations of the world. Whereas he sums it up in Romans 9.11, to have mercy upon all. In Romans 9.11, the knot of works invokes Paul's teaching on the antithesis of sola fide in Romans 9.4, where he says we're not justified based on works. In Romans 9.11, the call is the call of the gospel. In Romans 9.12, God gave Rebecca a gospel promise, just like he gave Sarah a gospel promise. So to sum this section up, if unbelieving Jews even if unbelieving Jews are lost, God's unconditioned purpose in choosing the nation of Israel stands rather than fails because the Jewish Messiah, who fulfills both the national and gospel aspects of God's twofold promise to Abraham, saves by the gracious gospel call rather than ethnicity or works. Okay, so what about the effectual call? Um, even if it's true, I don't think it can be proven from Romans 9. Happy to get into that in the discussion portion. Um, and also, if you look outside of Romans 9, the evidence for resistible grace is just very, very strong. And now, um, going to the potter clay metaphor. If someone is a vessel of wrath, is it permanent or can it be reversed? Um, so. For starters, it's uh, about Pharaoh and hardening, and it specifically says that it's about hardening um, in verse 18. But Pharaoh himself went back and forth. He's, he repented uh, at one point, then he repents of his repentance, that sort of thing. He says they can go. No, they can't go. They can go, but they can't take the children. So Pharaoh himself is going back and forth. And so that's a good, um, good indication that it may not be a permanent thing. And then... Um, these changes between vessels of wrath to vessel of mercy are well within the potter clay metaphor itself. So Paul specifically quotes from Isaiah 29, and in Isaiah 29, God hardens people or blinds them, but then he later restores the sight of those that he blinds, right? In Jeremiah 18, the potter changes vessels. He changes his purpose for the vessels. And he says, if the, those that God warns, if they repent, he will change his plans for them. You can see the same thing also in 2 Timothy 2.20 uh, and 21, where uh, Paul talks about um, vessels basically cleaning themselves up and changing categories that way. 
You can also see the same thing in Romans uh, 11, where God, oh, I'm sorry, where Paul holds out hope for and foretells the salvation of the Jews that God hardens, right? So they switch categories. In Romans 9, 25, and 26, um, those who are not my people will be called my people, the sons of God, um, uh, the sons of God, and those not loved will be loved. So they change categories from not loved to loved. Right, so the, there's this switching of categories, and in general, we're all born the children of wrath. And then, most importantly, um, God has patience on the vessels of wrath. Um, so that doesn't really make sense unless they can uh, can change categories. Um, thank you both for those uh, opening statements. I have a number of items, both that I had prepared beforehand and that I gathered based on your opening statements, um, items that we can discuss. Um, and I'm just going to go, I'm going to try to go back and forth between um, points that were brought up by each of you and, and, and go back and forth between them. Um, and so I want to begin with something Dan said, which is Paul's desire for the salvation of the Jews, which he which Paul expresses um, at the beginning of Romans 9, fits his theology. And you didn't say much about that, Dan, but can you unpack that a little bit? It, it sounds like maybe you're saying that these opening verses where Paul expresses his desire for the Jews is more consistent with um, a non-Calvinist theology than with a Calvinist one. Is that the case or, or was that just a passing statement that we don't really need to unpack much? Yes, I mean, I, th I think the common way to express the argument is that uh, on, on Calvinism is Paul more merciful than God? Is he does he care more about the reprobate than 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 God does? Um, but more to the point, um, you can see it in 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 chapter eleven where Paul's holding out hope for the salvation of the Jews, which doesn't make sense if they're reprobated. If they're reprobated, they're just toast, right? And and there's no there's no holding out hope for them. But that's not that's not Paul's attitude and approach. Okay. Um, now, Robert, I know how I would respond to what Dan just argued, um, but you're the guest, and so I'm interested to hear what you would have to say in response to that. Yeah. I so there, the the struggle doesn't make sense on 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 that view that that's that Paul is going on here and he's agonizing about uh, when he talks about God preparing some vessels for destruction. Um, uh, that that does create anxiety and anguish for Paul, um, and he he holds out the hope and 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 really the certain hope in in what is it nine twenty six or twenty seven, and uh, at the end of chapter eleven for the salvation of a remnant. Uh, so that the the only hope that Paul has is that God is going to un undo this hardening for this this remnant people. But one of the questions I want to pose to Dan is, um, do you believe that the hardening prevents their coming to faith in this age? And if so, prior to whatever Roman, the latter part of, of Romans 11 refers to with this, this uh, you know, they have been consigned over to disobedience in, in order that uh, uh, God may have mercy on them. And then he, he says that uh, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, uh, then all Israel will be saved. Um, does the hardening prevent their being saved in this age or not? Um, and if not, then um, then don't you still have the same problem where God has determined to harden? Uh, or, or if it does, don't you still have the same problem where God has determined to prevent their salvation? You know, by by hardening them in this age. And the only thing that will change that is an act of God to reverse that hardening at, at a future time, or well, at least a time that was future to Paul. I think. And so. 
that that's kind of where well, I would go with that. I hope that was cool. I, I think yeah. it was. Let me let me just in case. And I'm I, Dan may have followed, but even if he did, it, the audience might not have followed your question. I think what you're asking, Dan, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're making the point that. Even though Paul's contemporary Jews could be said to have been hardened because of their their pre-existing posture towards God, um, in other words, the non-Calvinists could say their hardening was based on their actions first. Um, your emphasis on this age means you're talking about future generations of unbelieving Jews, I think. And I think you're asking, is Paul is yeah. the hardening that Paul's talking about apply to generations of Jewish unbelievers future to Paul? And if so, and and does the, and if so, and if that hardening prevents them from being saved, doesn't Dan run into the same problem of uh, ultimately they are incapable of being saved because they're hardened, even though it wasn't based on anything that they had done prior to that? Is that right? Yeah, that that's part of it, and and maybe we'll we'll have another opportunity to get get behind it a little more. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Dan, thoughts on that? So. If you mean by this age, you mean now, like, you know, today, then no, I don't think Israel's being hardened today, at least not in this same sense. I mean, you'd probably have to take that person by person or that sort of thing. Um, so, when did it stop? Uh, when the fullness of the Gentiles came in, basically when the Gentiles were established in the church. So the, um, but actually Paul says uh, now. Uh, so, okay, so if you look at Romans 11, 31 it says uh so so they right referring to the israelites of paul's day to have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you they may also receive now now i recognize now is a variant and it's a tough variant but the they is not a variant and so it's the same group of people and who the the variant is Oh, I think it's in Sinaiticus and um, uh, Beza and in uh, Vaticanus, and it's and it's very widespread. So it, it may may well be original, um, but if it if he's saying now, obviously then then he meant at his time frame. But even if we don't, I think whoever put the now there, uh, it's consistent with the use of the word they, right? Because Paul's talking about the same group of people um, receiving mercy, and then. Um, then if we back up to Romans 11, um, so let's see, uh, so uh, 13, I'm speaking to you as a, uh, you Gentiles in so much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Those are his fellow Jews, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're pe people that he knew and thus save some of them. So if they're reprobated, that doesn't make any sense. And, and he's actually talking uh, that flows out of the context of the hardening. Um, so in, in more specifically, I think this is more important, is that the, re the return of the nation of Israel the, um, is not something that happens through a matter of causal determinism or something like that. I mean, Paul is quoting from Hosea and, and that sort of thing where um, Paul God talks about how he's going to make Israel return, and he doesn't talk about it as, you know, he's he's going to causally determine their return. He says, well, I'm going to hedge up a way of thorns, and they're going to see the uselessness of seeking after other gods, and they'll say to themselves, oh, I'll go back, right? So it's not a matter of, you know, um, God, God causally determining them to return. Um, he's going to use um, 
prevention of their sins and the argument from uselessness and basically he'll persuade them to come back um, i want to interject here for a moment uh, firstly just as a passing thing um it drives me absolutely bonkers when non-calvinists use the phrase causal determinism to describe the determinism we believe in and um uh, i'd like to avoid that phrase because i think it mischaracterizes our view but putting that aside um the question i have as a follow-up to what you just said dan is that um We've got a situation today that strikes me as incredibly uh, analogous to the situation in Paul's day. Namely, in Paul's day, the Jewish people at large generally are rejecting Jesus, and then there's a small remnant. The exact same thing is true today. And so the thing that I'm not sure I understand is if you think that hardening that Paul is talking about on on the Jewish people was only in that day, but came to an end when Gentiles fully came into the church, then um, he, Paul seems to offer that hardening as an explanation for that radical ratio between the large number of disbelieving Jews and the small number of believing Jews. So if that's the explanation for that disparity, then why do we have the exact same disparity today if they're not still being hardened in the same way oh, i mean uh, so I, I that would be conjecture if to try to answer a question like that um but uh you know i, I think there are a very large number of believing jews there were today, a very large but, uh number then but they were a small minor they were a small percentage of the jewish population and that's true today as well the number of jewish believers uh, in jesus is a very small percentage of the overall worldwide jewish population i don't know I, i'd have to Let's do some statistics, some math, like, you know, it, compare the number of believing Jews to the number of a believing, I don't know, Egyptians or something like that, and, and then compare the percentages. I mean, if, if that's the argument, I'm not, I'm not sure I... I All right, I, we I can move on. It. I think viewers will have caught what I was putting down. But yeah, can, Robert, why don't you follow up to yeah, what Dan had to say? Yeah, yeah, I'd really like to. So um, the I, I hear the point you're making from uh, verse 31 with this this now language, uh, but it, it, it seems to me that if we back up and, and get a better appreciation of of Paul's argument leading into it, um, he he's revealing in verse 25 something that is a, myst a mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I take that until uh, to indicate that this is something future, especially when we get into verse 26. And in this way, future tense, all Israel will be saved. So whatever the hardening refers to, it, it's still a reality because the whole point of Romans 9 to 11 is that all Israel has not been saved yet, right? And so once this, this hardening is done and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that hardening is done away with. And, and what, however we define that, that group, all Israel, uh, they will be saved. And, and it seems to be with, with his reference to the old Testament here, something pretty unilateral, uh, a deliverer will come from Zion and I will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And, and he says, he's going to establish their covenant and take away their sins. And they are currently still verse 28 right now they're enemies. So, so this hasn't happened yet. They're enemies as regards the gospel, but they're beloved. So their election guarantees that this is going to be realized. God's calling is 
irrevocable. And I think that only makes sense in, in uh, a Calvinist framework where God's calling is going to have its exact in, in, intended result. And he's going to uh, reverse that condition. And he's going to have uh, life-giving mercy for Israel and uh, uh, bring them to uh, this, this realized uh, salvation. And again, it's it's uh, it's mysterious. That's why why Paul uses that language, and that's why he uh, has that doxology at the end. But uh, whatever the now means, and whether that variant is is authentic or not, uh, it doesn't mean that it's already happened. Or Paul's whole discourse here is invalidated. Yeah, Dan, let me let me unpack that just a little bit more. Um, it, I, I think I hear what Robert is saying. It sounds like. Um, if if the fullness of the Gentiles has indeed already come in, as I think you said, and if I'm wrong about that, you can correct me. But if that's the case, then it would seem as though um, the, uh, the then all Israel must have been saved, past tense to us. Um, it must mean that the Jewish um, apostates, the hardened Jews, are no longer enemies. Um, and, and and so, how, how does this language of Paul even make sense as something that is true now? If the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it, it seems to mean that the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. What, what do you say to that? So, good, good question. So, for starters, I mean, I guess I would make a distinction between hardening and the return of the Jews, the, um, be, the, between the hardening and enemies being, you know, that, those sort of things. And like, like I said, I, I know you rejected um, the phrase causal determinism. You can just call it determinism or whatever. Uh, but let me, let me actually let me push back a little bit on that. So by the effectual call, what I understand it to mean, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, um, is that um, it, in essence that the person called has will believe and has to believe. They can't not believe they can't not respond they can't say no they can't reject the effectual call so it is god's influence on the person such that they have to become a believer and they won't not become a well, believer so let me comment on that yeah Just i'd love to get in i'd love to have a focused uh discussion on that calling language in paul i, I have that in but, my yeah. list i have it in my list that the color oh, language but before we get to that so the reason why that's not causal determinism is because causal determinism is the naturalistic form of determinism in which every effect or, or every event in time is itself the effect of a previous cause all right so um it's sort of like a chain of dominoes what a domino in the middle falling only falls because it was caused to fall by a previous domino but in theological in theistic determinism the likes of which Robert and I believe in God isn't um, isn't uh, causing events in time in order to bring about his intended ends all the time in other words he's not simply tipping over a domino he's not the cause that uh, merely a cause to a mere effect he foreordains the election uh, or, or the salvation of the elect and he does indeed regenerate them in time but that regeneration is not mere a mere cause to the mere effect of salvation um, they're they're uh, uh, their freed um, hearts are then guaranteed by God's decree to be saved through faith, but it's not a cause like a domino being tipped over, and that's why I object to it. But, but if you don't mind, I'd like to set the determinism dis discussion aside for maybe a future episode so we can focus on Romans 9, and, and I'd love to hear your sure. continued thoughts. Sure, and, and actually we can get back to Romans 9. We we're in 11 and Sorry, yeah, 11, should, but... should be focused on, 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 on 9. But so I, I think I, the, the answer to the, the partial answer to your question and without unpacking it too much is I, I see the difference between the hardening 
and the fact that they're enemies and the, the reconversion, those are different things. And I don't think that the reconversion is simply, you know, you remove the hardening and snap, everyone comes back. No, I, I don't see it that way. But um, but we should probably go back to Romans 9. And uh, for reference, actually, there's a more detailed discussion when Robert talked to Leighton Flowers about this. So um, if listeners want to hear more of that, that's probably a good source. Okay, let me let me do ask you for a specific answer, though, just, just so I understand, because I don't know where you stand on this it's not i agree that the hardening if the hardening is undone it doesn't logically require then the immediate salvation of all of israel um but i don't think that was roberts or my point the point is is that paul says it's in this way namely the partial hardening coming upon israel until the fullness of the gentiles come in it's in this way that all israel will be saved which suggests that when the fullness of the gentile has come in until which there has been a partial hardening upon israel once the fullness of the gentiles comes in then all israel will be saved it seems by paul's logic you have to say that if the fullness of the gentiles has come in then all israel has been saved do you not think that all israel has been saved or if you and if you do what do you think that means here Wait, are you, so, uh, I guess just verbally, are you connecting the the um, verse 25, a partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile come in? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a different sentence. And in this way, all Israel uh, and will be Hutos, saved. Yeah. thusly, yeah, will yeah, all yeah, Israel yeah. be saved. Okay. Uh, all right. So, OK, there's, there's no question there's there's. Uh, there, there is a there is a connection but it's not a causal connection it's it, um let, let me let me see what i what i'm saying is that there's it's that's the start of the process that's the start of the process so that the hardening reverses and then the gospel can start to work in the hearts of the israelites and then god uses persuasion to bring them okay in, so if i like he says in in, in hosea so you're but you're you're not wrong and you know the hardening is the first step the, the reversal of the hardening is the first okay step. so it, but it's not but it's not all this all right so so if i understand you correctly you're saying uh, to paraphrase what paul is saying a partial hardening has come upon israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come in when the fullness of the gentiles has come in and the partial hardening has is is undone then a process that will begin uh, will begin that will eventually some two thousand years later eventuate in all israel being saved is that what you're saying Yes, okay. I mean person by person, yeah, yeah. but person by person, it works differently, right? Obviously, in in so, some people would have you know been saved before the, I don't know the destruction in seventy A.D. Some people would have been saved after that destruction. Some you know, person by person, it would be different, but it's going to grow and grow and grow. So, um, eschatologically, you can think of it. Uh, I mean, whether you're dispensational or you're up, uh, you know, post millennial or something like that, it's a pretty optimistic approach to the outcome and, and that's what i think is going to happen with the church in general is that it's going to grow and grow and grow until i understand it's, it's just it's, it's really difficult for me to understand what sense the word thusly makes at the beginning of verse 26 if it's not in fact thusly but rather thusly and a bunch of other time and, and events that all israel will be saved but um we'll, we'll put that aside and, and I'll, I'll just i'll let robert's response to your original statement about paul's desire for the salvation of the jews stand i have more to say but i but i've forgotten what i was going to say so it's not going to do any good for me to try to remember let me now turn then to something that is more a part of um uh, uh, uh robert's positive case and and try to turn the tables a little bit and again i'm gonna try to go back and forth 
there. And that is this language of calling, uh, kaleo. Um, Robert, when I interviewed you, we talked about how it seems to us as though the, the, the um, significance of kaleo is not merely in naming or calling, but actually is creation language that lends itself more to unconditional election than otherwise. Can you uh, unpack that for a moment and then hear what Dan has to say? Yeah, so it, it's very fascinating when, when you actually go through and look at all Paul's uses of the term kaleo. And uh, I think naming in Romans 9 is a good, uh, a, a very helpful way of trying to understand what's going on to see that it's more than, uh, and I I would like when, when it's Dan's turn for him to explain what he means when he identifies the call with, with, with the gospel call specifically what he means but in romans 9 the calling names the descendant through whom uh you know you know names one descendant of abraham and doesn't name another descendant of abraham so in that in that scenario uh god is choosing an heir and this is very similar to what you get in uh first corinthians 1 26 to 31 where where calling is used synonymously with god's election with his choice god god calls one he has chosen uh what the world has seen as despised or foolish and and not what what it sees as powerful and and wise and uh elsewhere also uh paul Paul, you know, back to uh, Romans 8, uh, Paul says that uh, calling happens, uh, it, you know, after a chain of God's foreknowing, which I, I think is uh, indisputably uh, election language and his predestining, and it's prior to justification. And when he says those whom he foreknew, he also uh, predestined, called, and justified, I think when we see justified, we should say justified by faith, right? Well, who are they? They are those who were called. Who are they? They are those who were predestined. Who are they? Those are they are those who are foreknown so that that calling uh, happens prior to and actualizes somehow this uh, uh, justification by faith and um, elsewhere uh, it affects a transfer into Christ's kingdom that's first Thessalonians 2 uh, uh, Colossians 2:13 we've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son uh, this is all grounded in Isaiah uh, 40 to uh, 55 where God said that he would uh, recreate Israel reform her, establish an eternal kingdom with her. He would call her, he would form her, um, uh, make her a light to the nations and um, all this stuff. And lastly, I'll say this is very much like what we get in say uh, 1QH uh, 1538 where we're, we're calling uh, move somebody into the covenant community so uh, it's a lot more than um, an invitation it, it names uh, the, the the heirs of Abraham's promise as opposed to those who are not called so it's exclusive uh, and uh, it's effectual in that way we could talk about it as new creation we could talk about it as naming uh, but it, it, it's effectual however you want to look at it thoughts on that dan yeah absolutely okay so calling um if you i mean if you look it up in a lexicon it's going to have the two alternatives right um basically in summoning or invitation sort of sense and then also the naming sort of sense and you have to look at each usage in its context to determine which it is um in some sense i i have a feeling that what's happening is that the two senses are being conflated if that's true then that's going to get complicated real quick um it's in, in certain contexts, it's pretty clear which it, which it is, whether it's calling or whether it's naming. In some in some contexts, it's a little ambiguous and and it's a little harder to come by. Um, 
in Paul, you know, when he uses call, and he's talking about the call of the gospel like he does in, uh, let's say, I think it's in Second Thessalonians, um, you, you know, you're called by the gospel. Um, in, the, in that sense, he sometimes uses the noun, the called, and I think he's there talking, it's a, it's a synecdoche, it's, a, you know, a part representing the whole. Like, um, you know, when a mom says, hey, get your butt over here, right? She's not, you know, she wants the, the whole kid to come over. It's, it's a pretty common thing we do in language. Um, and it's a synecdoche for those who respond, and he never used the call for those that, that don't respond, right? So, exactly. And it's like, uh, it's like uh, saying my invited guests, right? So, um, you know, you go to a party and, and the, the, the host says, you guys are my invited guests, you know, it's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of that sense. Um, now, in other cases, we can see, you know, who Jesus says, many are called and few are chosen, um, you know, that sort of thing, then, then we can see it's in a... Um, uh, the the call is general, and for the most part, you know, in Romans nine, the, the in nine seven, and in the quotation in Hosea, um, th th it's pretty clear that it's in the naming sense. It's less clear in Romans nine eleven. It looks more like the call of the gospel there, but it's it's. I'll, I'll admit that it's uh, uh, am ambiguous, and you kind of have to wrestle that to the ground. Um, now, uh, in terms of defending the uh, the fact that it's a synecdoche, I have a quote here from Clement of Alexandria uh, from the Stromata. This is Book One, Chapter Seventeen. He says he's commenting on um, uh, first the First Corinthians, the the, the called language there, um, and he says that. Um, the, the preference and choice of truth is voluntary. By that de declaration, I will destroy the wisdom of what the wise, declares him uh, to have set forth light, to bring forth in opposition, uh, and despise the contempted barbarian philosophy as the lamp, which shone upon by the sun. All having been therefore called, those who are willing to obey have been named called. Let me repeat that last part. All having therefore been called, those who are willing to obey have been named called, right? And that's, and, and so, so my understanding of this as a synecdoche is not something I'm doing in response to Calvinism. This predates Calvinism uh, sure. by, by a long shot. But it now, postdates Paul by hundreds of years because you, you quote, a, quote a Clement of Alexandria. I mean, if we get into 1 Corinthians 1, uh, the idea that, that that's the case, he's Paul is talking about in this calling those whom God has called, i.e. chosen, and those who he has not called, i.e. not chosen. And so I, I, I realize that that's, that's your theology there and uh, reflected in, in Clement, but I don't think that we can map that over onto Paul. I don't think there's there's any good validation yeah, for that so, when, so we, when we look at the me, evidence. So, so in Go, yeah, go Dan, I, I just I, I want to um, sort of say why it is that your response, uh, including Clement of Alexandria's response, doesn't do justice in my mind to Paul's calling language here. And it's because although the semantic range of kaleo is certainly larger than the kind of naming um, creational language that Robert and I are talking about, nevertheless, we have to, obviously one of the fundamental rules of hermeneutics when determining what a word means in a context is looking how the author has been using that word and continues to use the word. And if we go back to the very first time Paul 
Paul uses it in Romans 4.17. He says, um, God gives life to the dead and calls, kaleo, into existence the things that do not exist. But he's just, he's, he's, he's offering that as an explanation or as a summary of the passage he quotes from the Old Testament in which God says to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. So he's kaleoing into existence a people, a, a people descended from Abraham. And then in Romans 8.30, we've got this chain, those whom he um, foreknew, he uh, predestined, and those whom he predestined, he kaleoed. Notice this isn't the naming of a people, the called. This is the verb, kaleo, and it's applied to the group of people whom he predestined. And then it's that same group of people whom he called, whom he also justified. It sounds like what you're saying is that calling here is invitational, in which case you've got those he predestined, he also called, but yeah, oh yeah, he also called everybody else, and those whom he called, but not everybody else, just the ones that that um, that responded to his call, he also justified. It seems a really bizarre back and forth. So it's because I think of those two previous uses of kaleo that I'm struggling to make sense of your explanation of kaleo here. So yeah, Dan, I'll turn it back okay, over so, to you. So sorry uh, if I hog the mark, but I got three things to sure. touch on: uh, Clement of Alexandria, Romans four, and Romans eight. Is that okay if I touch on mm -hmm. those three? Yeah. Okay. So for starters, Clement of Alexandria was uh, it was in the two hundreds, uh, early two hundreds. So he was not that far removed from the apostles. But not only that, he's from Alexandria. He grew up speaking Greek, right? He probably knew more Greek than the scholars today when he was ten years old, just in his own brain and in his self talk. And 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 he's commenting on Paul and. You know, the scholars today would sell body parts for his access to the Library of Alexandria, which is now lost. So, um, I, I mean, I have to put a lot of weight on on his knowledge of the Greek. They, I mean, that that's that's what he grew up. Speaking. Yeah, but he's not. But he's uh, not. All he's doing is accepting one one definition from among the semantic range of Kaleo. It's not as if yeah. it's not as if um, Clement of Alexandria is. Um, interpreting the Greek, he's he right. He's he's not um, coming to a conclusion based on the semant uh, the specific definition of kaleo. He just thinks that the meaning Paul has in mind of kaleo is this one definition from among multiple definitions within its semantic range. That's what I think too. But okay, so touch now. Let's go to uh, to to Romans chapter uh, four seventeen. Let's go to let, let's go let's four seventeen. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, and I'm just pulling that up. Um, so it says, um, so this is an, okay, so starting, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Okay, so, um, and in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives uh, life to the dead and calls into existence things that are not uh, to the things that now exist. Okay, I, I butchered that, but um, yeah, yeah. All, right, all right, so um, a couple things. Um, so one, um, I've made he, the, the promises. I've made you a father of many nations. That's in the um, present tense, right? But that hadn't happened yet, right? With Abraham, and so I think that's in part what he's talking about. Um, so, had God made Abraham a father of many nations? Well, in the future he would, but he's talking about it in the present tense, and so in that sense, God's. Um, talking about things that don't yet exist as if they exist and I, so I think that's that's roughly what he was talking about in this context but then there's the phrase um, God who um, gives life to the dead and calls into the existence to things that do not yet exist so let's say you guys are right 
right? Let, let's, let's say that there's this creational aspect to calling and that has to be the case and we just have to accept that. Okay, so if that's the case, now let's take a, a, a general call of the gospel, like um, whosoever will may come and partake of the water of life freely, right? When people come, so they're invited to come, when they come, they partake of the water of life and they, they pass from death to life. And God creates life in them. So that's the relationship between the, the, the creation language. We, we shouldn't think of it in terms of getting behind the invitation, but rather in the life that's transformed as, as life, as uh, he gives life to the dead. Okay. And, 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 and so, in this context, yeah. it's in about justification, which is by faith. Okay, but, but just to be clear, the ones that Paul is saying God calls into existence vis-a-vis -vis Abraham, is not, it's not an invitation at all. It's it's uh, it's the yeah, it's explicit true. creation um, calls into existence, and the other descendants of Abraham are not included among those so called. Yeah, and and let me make the point from Romans nine. Um, what he says there is that um, th this this calling was was the naming of Isaac as opposed to uh, Ishmael. And then he, he moves on to Jacob and Esau, and the, the calling, the naming there happened before they were born and had done anything good or evil. So here, Paul is very intentionally, very explicitly, and I, I think emphatically, setting aside uh, any function to human conditions making God's call effectual. God's call is God's call, and it's with rea without regard uh, to human conditions. It happened before they were born and had done anything good or evil. And that's why he sets up that new antithesis that, that I made the point in, I believe it's in verse 16, not according to works, but according to him who called. And then, um, you know, you, you, you get it kind of repeated and, and, and I think ramped up in, in verse 18. So, so, so yeah. So, so that, that's where, that's where I said, I think you're conflating the two, the two concepts. So let's, let's say for the sake of argument that it's naming. And, and frankly, in, in Romans 9, 7, it, it certainly is, it is name, yeah. In naming. Yeah. So um, what is the naming concept in terms of soteriology? It's it's God bringing us into his family. It's it's making us the brother of Christ and that sort of thing. And so from that standpoint, um, we shouldn't really connect that with the call of the gospel explicitly. It, it, it follows the call of the gospel, but it's a separate concept. Adoption happens yeah. after just as basically as part of justification, which comes after faith. So um, if, if, if he means naming or adoption into God's family, um, then that, that's, again, it is after faith, but it's, a, uh, it's separate and distinct, and it's something that God effectually does. And, and you're right, that part is unilateral. Um, but, it's, it's, but we shouldn't conflate the call of the gospel well, with adoption. Well, but that's just it. I don't um, think that um, Robert and I would yeah. agree that the calling language here is a reference to the universal uh, call of the gospel. Yeah, and, and let me just say the... the, the the validation for what I'm doing comes in those inferences because Paul is is taking God's calling, God's choosing of one child of Abraham and and the reject well you know rejection. We don't have to even go that that strong. Um, in order to to wring from that story of Israel's history uh, application for what's going on right now, why is it that there's only a remnant who are saved right now? Because God is calling in accordance with 
how he always has one child of Abraham to the exclusion of another. And, and, and he is eliminating again, the human conditions that might be thought to, uh, uh, you know, give discrimination to the effect of the call. No, he says it's about God's call. God has mercy on whom he, uh, the desires and he hardens whom he desires. So um, the the reason why that I, I think the you're right and as far as conflating or at least connecting you know these different senses is because I think that's what Paul's inferences are are uh, encouraging us to do. That's the point that Paul is making in in the context of Romans nine. Okay, so just, hold so on, really on quick, Dan. I, I just want to say after you say what you're about to say, I'm going to let you have the final word on this point, and then I want to move on to another one. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so fair enough. So um, what, what I'd say is um, the, the conflation aspect that I see is that the call of the gospel or the invitation sense is before faith. The naming aspect, the adoption aspect is after faith, and you're just connecting the two together. Paul That's said it happened before they were born and had done anything. All right, we're going to get <laughs> we're going to get to um, that yeah. issue. But first, I want to turn to yeah. what sounded to me like one of Dan's major uh, points, which was based on um, a verse in Romans 10, um, verse 10, with the for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, in your opening presentation, Dan, um, you argued in part because of that verse and in part because of the allegedly chiastic structure of Romans 9 to 11 you said this 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 idea of um of being saved through faith is the central theme of that chiasm um and, and that it's God's righteousness and salvation via faith and do you think that a not your non-calvinist reading of Romans 9 um better is mu is much more consistent with that central theme of the chiasm than our calvinistic reading of it do you want to unpack that for us a little bit more and and I'll give Robert a chance to chime in yes yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so um Paul is using this whole argument to defend his argument of justification by faith. Basically, the the, the loss of the Jews is uh, a, a problem with justification by faith. Um, and so the, the Jews are arguing justification by faith can't be true because if it's true, that means a lot of Israelites are lost and Paul is defending them. In, in some sense, basically what I see in Romans 9, uh, 6 through 29, the hardest parts the, is going to be the hardening of the Jews and the calling of the Gentiles. Those are the things that the Jews aren't going to accept. So um, Paul is kind of warming them up with, uh, with sort of some body shots, right? He's uh, he, He's got to break down some of their defenses uh, before he gets there. And that's what's happening in Romans nine through eleven um, but I do think that Christ is the you know fulfillment of that promise to Abraham he is the purpose in election um, and so that all the nations of the earth will be saved um, and, the, and that's the election of the nation of Israel and and not the election of individuals to salvation um, so does that well, um, but, is that enough? Uh, well, but what I'm missing, um, and I'm sure this is just my, I, I just must must have missed it in what you said. What I'm missing is how, if this is the central theme of Romans nine to eleven, how that's in any way more consistent with your reading of Romans nine than with ours. Because, oh, because I don't. Um, okay, well, let, that that's going to get right back to um, Roberts mercy language um so if you like if robert if you want to pull up your very first slide um okay it, yeah um it, okay and while he's doing that i'll just make the general point that um you know the free offer of the gospel seems inconsistent with 
the, this whole argument you've made of effectual calling. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So, for example, um, well, wait a minute, know, though. Where is where is where is libertarian free offer of the gospel in Romans ten ten? It just says with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one convinces and is saved. And then it goes on to say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But all of those things are absolutely one hundred percent true in our theology as well. I don't think that's consistent there, though, because I don't think it's consistent with anything that you argued in terms of the effectual call. So if what's what's required is the effectual call, you know, if the Philippian jailer said, um, you know, sirs, what, what, what must I do to be saved? Paul should just say, you just wait right there. No, because, come on. You know, is this really what you, yeah. you couldn't have been a Calvinist if you so, think that's true? I understand. I, I can quote back what you know, certain yeah. or Edwards or those guys would say, but I still think they're wrong. So, look, okay, let me let me put it to you this way. So, um, if if you're offering, you know, obviously Calvinists preach the gospel. There's no question about that. I get that. Are they consistent to though? Does it fit with their within their yes. theology? Okay. okay so, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> let, let let me put it to you this way. Um, uh, so I think there's two problems with Romans, uh, or three problems with uh, Romans um, 10, 9 uh, on Calvinist theology. So would you offer um, ice cream to a dead person? Would you just stand up for a grave and say, here you go, you can have this if you want it? No, but if and, I had two then, people in front of me, well, one of whom is dead, but I didn't know it, then I would offer the ice cream to them both. Yeah, yeah, but God knows. And, yeah, but and, I'm not God. And then, and, and then here's, the, here's the worst problem. What if you don't even have the ice cream? What if Christ didn't die for that person? Is it even true that if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that they would be saved? No, because there's no atonement for them. But if, they, but so, if the atonement wasn't for them, they wouldn't yeah. believe. Yeah. Exactly, but the, but the run on the bank scenario, right? And I understand that in your theology, you make the scenario um, impossible. If you argue on per impossibility, if the reprobate believed, Per impossible, if the reprobate believed, they wouldn't be saved because Christ didn't die for them. There's no salvation for them. You're, you're right. So okay. the God I, 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 let's. I want to give Robert. I, I keep interjecting, and I want to give Robert a chance yeah. to respond. <laughs> but, but it's, but it's. You're, you, you, you talk about per impossible, but that's just it. It is impossible from our perspective. It's like saying, what if a circle were square? But, but anyway, I want to. I want to stop. I want to give Robert a chance to respond, but Dandy, have you finished? I want to, I do want to give you a chance though to finish your thought uh, and, and then I'll let Robert respond. No, go, uh, go ahead, Robert. Yeah. So, uh, there, there's a real interesting essay, uh, in a collection of essays on Paul by CK Barrett, um, uh, called, uh, Romans nine 30 through 10 21 fall and responsibility of Israel. And, uh, he, he, he deals with this, this section, which, uh, I think, admittedly, we we should talk about you know beginning uh, in 9:30 highlights Israel's responsibility, no question about it. They did not believe, but that comes only after Paul um, talks about God's effectual mercy in in chapter nine. And so, and and notice the condition. So he says, so you you get conditional elements here for salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved if you believe, etc. Right. Um, those are conditions for salvation. These are not conditions for election. Back to Romans 9, conditions for election uh, on the part of the human are emphatically and iteratively rejected in, in Paul's rhetoric. And so uh, what, what happens, I think, in, in the Arminian construals is, is there's a conflation of election and salvation 
and justification, and it just flattens out Paul's distinctives. Uh, I can talk about um, uh, this condition, and I tell people you need to believe, you need to believe, right? Um, but uh, ultimately, if you ask me about election, they don't become elect when they believe. Uh, they were elect Ephesians 1 before the foundation of the world. Uh, Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 13, 8, their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Um, and uh, Paul says in Romans 9 uh, that they, uh, it, with regard to Jacob and Esau as an analogy for what's going on with Israel, God's choice of the one and hatred of the other happened before they were born and had done anything good or evil. So um, we, we need to be careful that we're not conflating and, and flattening out these, these different terms that, that Paul uses. They're all in dynamic relationship to one another. We can't talk about justification or we shouldn't talk about justification without talking about election, without talking about salvation. They're interrelated, they're dynamic, and sometimes they're not neatly distinguishable in some ways, especially with justification and salvation. Uh, but we cannot force these conditions uh, to be conditions for divine mercy and for divine calling and for divine election. Paul is is emphatic in Romans 9 that there are no human conditions for those we're gonna things. Come, we're so, going to come to the okay. human conditions thing in a moment. Um, that's, but yes. before we do, Dan, I'm going to give you the final word on this, this topic. So I think for Paul, he doesn't oppose these things. If you look at Romans uh, 4.16, he says it's, it's by faith so that it might be grace. Yeah. And, and grace is a gift, but for Paul, Paul, it's based on faith. Um, in, in some sense, I agree with you that he's focused on the grace aspect, especially in, in um, Romans. Um, uh, in, in Romans nine, he certainly is focused on grace, especially you can see that in verses fifteen and sixteen, um, and, and really through, through throughout. But but faith is there also. So um, and he's even though what he. Uh, Okay. Well, anyways, we can we can go on to the next topic. I'll, I'll leave it. All there. right. Well, um, just to, I just want to say we're we're this last point that we'll discuss before wrapping up is uh, makes only half or less of the points I thought we would get to discuss. So maybe yeah. maybe the three of us can get together for a round two sometime soon. But I'm gonna yeah, for, because yeah. I've got a hard stop. I'm gonna give us this last talking point to discuss before I have us wrap up. Okay. Um, and since I've been going back and forth between key points of each of your presentations, I'm returning now to a key point of Robert's presentation which is that Paul seems really emphatic in Romans 9 that God's mercy um, does not depend on human will at all. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me, at least, as if he's merely saying that it doesn't depend upon works of righteousness, because when it says, um, uh, because of the... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, what verse is it? Uh, yeah, verse 16. Then it depends. Yeah. It, it, notice it doesn't say it doesn't depend on human works. Right? It says, so then it doesn't depend on, um, on, on uh, uh, fellow, on willing, or on um, uh, trecho, exerting, or, or trying, or striving, or something like that. It sounds as if Paul is ruling out any um, human uh, decision-making, any human willing um, when it comes to uh, being grounds for God's mercy. Um, before I ask Dan for his thoughts on that, do you want to unpack that any further, Robert, or did I capture your point pretty well? Yeah, yeah, no, that's pretty good. Let me just say, so um, notice the antithesis there. Uh, not human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then the, the issue of the will comes up again, and it comes up in verse 18. Whose will is determinative? God's will. 
God wills who are uh, mercies whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. Verse 19, the objection, why can he still find fault for who resists his will? It's a different, it's a different term, but it's very much related. Paul is upholding divine will and, um, and, and bracketing out human will as determinative here. And um, I think with Piper and that, that quote I shared, that that would have to include faith as a condition for election. Faith, again, we don't want to conflate these. Faith is a condition for justification, but Paul is getting behind justification here to talk about election calling mercy. So that's that's the point. Go ahead, Dan, please. And you've been a good sport, Dan. I appreciate you, man. You're kind of... Yeah. Yeah. But we love you, man. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. Yeah, I, no, I appreciate the feedback. This actually sharpens me, so I appreciate it. So, okay. So, uh, on conditionality. So, for starters, I have to start with a broad, and then I'll get to uh, uh, Romans. So, there is definitely a sense in which salvation is unconditional conditioned, um, especially using Barclay's uh, terminology, which I know you're familiar with. Um, so no Arminian says, oh, well, you know, reads John 3.16 and says, oh, yeah, I definitely deserve God to send his son to die for me, right? So God's choice that Christ would save believers is unconditioned on us. It's not something that we deserved or earned. He could have just let us all um, um, go to hell. So, you know, that that's certainly unconditioned mercy and grace. And But for Paul, he reconciles these things. And like you said, in, in 4.16, he talks about, um, you know, that, that it's a gift. And faith guarantees that it's a gift. And that's because faith recognizes that God's mercy is unconditioned in this way, that we don't deserve it. Um, no believer thinks that they deserve uh, Paul. Uh, they died for him. Now, where I object is... Um, Sometimes it seems that Calvinists, and I think Chris is actually really solid at this, but but sometimes Calvinists jump back and forth between salvation and election. And especially in, in some of your language, Robert, I, I see you talking about, well, mercy itself is unconditioned. And, well, that there I have to object, and that does seem to uh, come into conflict with Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone. Now, let's talk about... Um, um, uh, the. Romans uh, 15 for a second. So you you rightly pointed out that it's in the context of or 9.15 for a second. You rightly pointed out it's in the context of the golden calf incident. So what happened is God gave the Ten Commandments, but the Israelites immediately fell into apostasy. Well, once you break the law, um, more law keeping won't get you back, you know, won't, won't fix the problem you've caused with the covenant, won't fix that disruption. What matters is God's mercy. God has to forgive sins. So mercy presupposes sin, just like in the golden calf incident. So when you come down to 918, and here's where I have probably you and I have one of the bigger differences of opinion. So it's uh, so, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. The mercy presupposes sin, presupposes breaking the, the Sinaitic covenant, the law, right? So it's the same in both cases, right? God is either going to have mercy or he's going to harden, both of which presuppose sin. Now you seem to want to say, well, the aspect of hardening isn't about it being judicial and a punishment for past sin, even though you admit that Pharaoh was a notorious sinner, you know, uh, making bricks without straw is what we use now for someone that's a cruel um, boss or something something like that, right? So, but, so even though Pharaoh's a notorious sinner, you don't want to focus on the fact that he was a sinner and therefore God hardened him. But that's what Paul is doing here. Mercy presupposes sin, but so does hardening, right? It's there. And 
And th that's why God forms people. Uh, th that's why people are vessels of wrath. God is angry with them because they're sinners. Okay, but but Dan, do you? And so, I'll, I'll let Robert respond in a second. But I just want to ask a clarifying question: Are you implying that, in our view, mercy is synonymous with election, and hardening is synonymous with um, reprobation? So you are very personally. You are very consistent on this point. Okay. Because because you're more super lapsarians, I think Robert, at least when I've read his blog post, he's sometimes here, he's sometimes there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure uh, where I stand on the whole decree relation to the fall thing. So yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily I don't affirm super lapsarianism either. I was just I, I was just saying. Uh -huh. yeah. It sounds like you're saying, Dan, that it doesn't make sense for God's mercy um, to be synonymous with election because it, it, you can't have mercy unless you presuppose sin, but God elected people before they sinned. But that argument seems to only work if you think that we think mercy is synonymous with election, and I don't think it is. Yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah. I, let me take a firm stance myself. Okay. Mercy yeah. is about salvation. It's about the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. It's not election. Now, God elects to salvation, but um, but that's that's different. Mercy is about salvation itself. It's about forgiving sins. Okay, so this is really helpful, and and this is this is um, where we need to clarify. So so Paul's whole point, you know, building up to a, a climatic. Uh, stage in his argument at the end of Romans 3 is that all of humanity is the in in the same boat uh, same boat guilty of sin right so that uh, no one will be justified by works of the law right Jew and Gentile like all are are in that same boat so uh, w you're right Mer mercy is related to election but I, I I will not conflate mercy and election election um, is uh, so this is something I'm working out and I'm, I'm gonna uh, probably uh, send an article for publication on this because I, I think there's a little bit of gap in the scholarship here um, what we talk about election being a broader category and mercy is about the preservation of the covenant people uh, chosen by grace right so that so that there's a distinction in, in my mind between grace and mercy a lot of times we flatten those out uh, and it's fascinating that, that Paul talks all this all this language leading up to Romans 9 he uses the term grace a whole lot right never once uses mercy until Romans 9 and then doesn't use it again after 11 except in chapter 15 and he's looking back kind of like summarizing the essence of what you got in Romans 9 to 11 and so mercy I think is something specific to the preservation of a uh, faithful remnant of Israelites and I would validate that by looking at mercy discourse in other Jewish texts as well especially when you compare and contrast Paul to texts like Wisdom of Solomon, Jubilees, uh, Psalms of Solomon, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can kind of see where, where Paul uh, is plotted into that. And I, I gave some, some passing reference to that So, um, uh, in, in my opening. So my argument is not that um, you know, this is some prelapsarian uh, sort of uh, uh, mercying and hardening election and reprobation. Um, all of Israel is in the same boat, uh, in sin, uh, helpless with the law and God chooses to have mercy to preserve his covenant by by naming remnants or, or naming individuals as a part of this remnant to preserve the covenant as he did in the story of the golden calf and the others he hardens uh, so he that's my only point is um, 
that, that I'm trying to get at, and I hope that's clear because I'm still working out how to uh, explain this in my own thinking, but I, I'm not conflating mercy and election exactly uh, in that regard. Definitely not conflating mercy and grace, um, but uh, anyways, the, the point being God, God mercies individuals based on his choosing. And those he doesn't mercy, he hardens. And, and specifically in this context, we're talking about Israelites. So, yeah. Dan, before um, I, we've got to wrap up here in a minute because I've got to go, but I really want to give you a chance to um, help me understand something before we wrap things up. Um, you seem to absolutely affirm that the that God's mercying doesn't depend upon human will or exertion. Um, and, and I agree with you. I, I've, I'm on the public record saying that um, non-Calvinists are not saying that through faith people merit to any degree their yeah. salvation. I yeah. totally agree with you there. I think Robert does too. But I agree. Too, but yeah. our point here is not about whether or not one's will merits salvation. Our point, it seems to me, is that Paul seems to say that the mercying of God doesn't hinge on any act of human will at all, right? So in verse 16, uh, um, therefore it is, uh, it, it is not of willing, right? Or of, uh, sorry, ude to trechantas, or of exertion. So salvation doesn't seem to hinge at all on human will in our in our estimation. But it sounds like, it, it seems to me as if in your view it does, even if it's not a meritorious act of will. Do you want to comment? So, yeah, sure. So um, I guess the guardrails I'd put up is we can't interpret this in any way that conflicts with sola fide, right? We can't. We, we, we just, I mean, that would just, just destroy Paul's whole epistle. Now... So what is he talking about? It is the, the plan of salvation, right? The fact that God is going to forgive anyone at all and who he's going to forgive. Right? I, I think now, I get it. So, so just, just because I want to hurry up and I, I want us to come to a close here. You're saying the, the, offer, the, the, the offer to save whoever believes that God has issued is completely independent of anybody's decision. If somebody wants to say, you should save whoever earns it, or you should save only Jews, or you should save only whatever, um, you're saying that's it doesn't depend at all on what people want. It depends solely God's choice to save whomever he will save on whatever conditions he, he bases it. That choice is itself independent of human willing. Is that what you're saying? Yes, you're. Yes, you're exactly right. The plan of salvation isn't something that we chose, and it's not based on. Human All right. Will. Maybe that's something we can um, pick up on if we do have another uh, round two. But because I have a hard, we really should. Yeah, yeah. But, but but because <laughs> I've got a hard. To, a lot more. To yeah, say. I've I've just got a work a meeting at work. I've got to go to in five minutes. I so I want to give each of you okay. just maybe sixty seconds to offer a final word, um, and I'll turn to you first, Robert. Um, so just spend sixty seconds to sort of summarize whatever thoughts you've had over the course of this conversation that you'd like to leave listeners with. Yeah, just uh, you know, mentioning the point that, that Dan just made, that, that we, we're, we're not uh, placing this intention, intention with sola fide. Sola fide is about justification, salvation. We're taking a step back and looking at election. Election is presented as unconditioned. There are conditions on, on justification, salvation, and, and those are important things to keep in, in a dynamic relationship to one another. Uh, Paul's point throughout Romans 9 is that uh, God 
God's will is ultimate, it's primary. It gives account for why the majority of Jews in his day were not believing the gospel. And that's what we need to, we need to define particularly what the gospel is. The gospel is that uh, Jesus Christ has been exalted as Paul opens up Romans uh, to God's right hand as the son of God in power. Um, and as a consequence of that, there is salvation for those who believe. And, and in order to give account for why Israel has not uh, embraced this gospel, he goes into the issue of, of divine election, predestination, uh, to give account to that. And he, he explains that, that God chooses one child of Abraham and uh, rejects another. And, and that's what gives account to the fact that so many have not believed. But yet he holds out uh, not just a hope, but a certain expectation that um, uh, a remnant will be saved uh, when God is done with, with his purposes and using this, this hardened condition of most of Israel uh, to uh, take the gospel to the Gentiles also effectively. So, yeah. All right. And uh, Dan, you take 60 or so seconds to give your final thoughts. Sure. So for starters, thank you both. I, I really expect, uh, respect your work and appreciate it. If you're ever in the D.C. area, either of you, uh, look me up. Um, you can get uh, we can go to the Bible Museum together. And okay. You can get, get, get your Bible nerd shirt. If yeah, you want. Uh, I want um, so, uh, okay, so um, just summing up Romans, uh, obviously there's this promise to Abraham that's vitally important, and it has two aspects. When Abraham believes this promise that he's justified, that creates one Israel. The second Israel is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is chosen. That's what's in the Old Testament text. That's what Paul is talking about. But God has a purpose in choosing Israel, and that's to spread the gospel to the whole world. And then we see in the, uh, the giving of mercy, it's based on having broken the law. So mercy presupposes sin, but so does hardening. And God can either have mercy or he can harden. That's a judicial hardening based on that previous sin, but that hardening can reverse. And we can see that in Isaiah 29 and in Jeremiah 18, and the fact that he has patience on these vessels of wrath. And, um, uh, and also in, in Romans chapter 11, when the hardening reverses. So we shouldn't take this as some type of uh, teaching of unconditional reprobation. All right. Um, really, I've enjoyed both of your, your uh, contributions to the discussion, and I'm really hoping that I can get you both in for a round two to continue the discussion. I hope that you guys have also enjoyed it and that you both feel that I've been fair. I suspect Robert is, certainly thinks I've been fair, but I'm more interested in you, Dan, since you and I are on different uh, sides of this, but we'll, we'll uh, follow up offline. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, let's Thank do you. let's do a round two. That closing really made me want to get into those vessels of, of wrath and uh, vessels of mercy. So yeah, All right. <laughs> thanks, All right. Dan. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. Robert is in the chat right now and asks when I expect to post part two. Um, part two has been recorded uh, and the conversation continues for just as long as this one was. Uh, and I think it's extremely edifying. It's going to be really um, useful. And currently the plan is to make it the next episode of The Apologetics, which would be in two weeks from today. Um, if I change my mind, then maybe I'll do it sometime sooner than that. Uh, but for the time being, that would be what uh, what I would encourage you to do if you're interested in, in hearing Dan and Robert continue the conversation is tune back into the next episode of The Apologetics Live two weeks from today, which will be November 16th, Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, and you'll get to hear round two of Robert Wiesner's and Dan Chappa's conversation on Romans chapter 9. 
Um, I really enjoyed it, uh, and, and I think that this is a great model of how a how two Christians who hold two different sides of an issue can have a uh, edifying, fruitful uh, conversation in which pe- in which there's challenge and pushback and all that, and yet at the same time they're loving to one another and they treat each other with respect and kindness. Um, and, and and I'm increasingly um, appreciating how valuable this kind of conversation is between Christians who disagree on a topic, um, which is something I'll be saying a little bit about at the conference in my uh, presentation coming up this coming Saturday. So just as a reminder, and, and uh, uh, I'm assuming it was Braxton Hunter, I suppose it's possible that it was Jonathan Pritchett, but I think Braxton, Braxton was in the, the live chat, even if he's not any longer, um, and I pointed out that he will be one of the plenary speakers. Uh, he'll be speaking this Friday night um, f- after Tim Barnett, and then uh, I'll be speaking after Clay Jones and Paul Copan on Saturday and then there'll be an awesome panel discussion. So again, just not to beat a dead horse, but if you haven't yet signed up for either an in-person registration or a virtual online registration, uh, go to RethinkingHellConference.com. There's still time to do it, and you can get the virtual ticket for just five bucks. It'll allow you to watch the videos live or on demand long before the general public gets access to the recordings. Um... And if you can be in the Seattle area, uh, then I encourage you to attend in person. We'll be socially distanced. It'll be safe. All of that kind of th- uh, all that stuff. And um, if again, if fifty dollars is a, um, a pro- is is too prohibitive for you to be able to attend in person, reach out to me personally. Just shoot me a message at facebook.com/slash/chrisdate or shoot me an email at live at rethinking hell. Sorry. I don't know why I said live at RethinkingHell.com in the introduction. It's because I go back and forth between Rethinking Hell and The Apologetics. You can you can email me at the email address you see on your screen right now, theapologetics at hotmail.com, and I will um, help you to get access for less than that $50 if that's going to be prohibitive. So I hope to see a lot of you there. Um, and again, the plan is to have round two of this discussion between Robert and Dan two weeks from today. Um, but until then, I will... Um, Like I said, hope to see you at the conference, Um, and if not at the conference, then in the next episode of Rethinking Hell Live, which is in one week from today, uh, November 9th, Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. So um, until then, have a great week, stay safe, and God bless. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...